um, in these weeks was God's wisdom revealed. And this is going to be a three-part series. Um, We looked last week first at the spiritual realities about God's wisdom. And the main focus of our text in verses 6 through 10 last week was focusing on the message of God that was preached and therefore how it was received. How it was received. And we identified two ways in which the Word of God, the wisdom of God, as we have said, the message of the cross, the message of the gospel has been received. The first, we, I said, was that those receive the message of Christ, those who are believers. And Paul identifies them as the mature. And he uses the word mature, not in the sense that they have grown spiritually, but because they um, are those who have received the gospel message and are actually the authentically true or mature, as opposed to those who called themselves mature in the Corinthian world. These men or women who boasted in their own wisdom, in their own strength, and in their own power, they considered themselves mature, but Paul says, no, sir. The true mature are those who have been blessed by the gift of the Holy Spirit to receive and understand the message of Christ. He says that message is not only for the mature, but it's predestined. It was the plan of God, the very work of redemption set before the ages that were put into place. Time and space were created. God had planned in the beauty of the Godhead, the triune nature of God, the work of redemption was going to be accomplished by the Son for the glory of God. And the predestination or the election of those recipients of God's great redemptive work was also set in place. Therefore, the message of Christ was predestined, the work of Christ was predestined, and those who receive it were predestined to understand and to believe. And we focus on the fact that those who receive the message receive it not only for the glory of God, but for their own glory. And we explained, I explained how that our glory is not a moment to boast in, but instead it was a glorying over the wise and the, the intelligent of the world. Because this is what God does. In His wisdom, He shames the wise in the world. Therefore, you are being glorified in Christ because God is showing His own majesty and His own power and His own might that extends over and then shames and humbles those who consider themselves wise in this world. So we looked at those who receive the message of Christ, and then secondly, we looked at those who reject the message. Paul calls them the rulers of this age, representative of those who rejected Jesus, who crucified Him, who put Him on a cross... And they represent those who reject the message of Christ wholesale, who don't understand the message. They don't understand the carburetor. They don't understand the the components of the air condition. They don't even understand where the dipstick is to check their oil. I've never been able to say dipstick in a church sermon before, so that that was fun. You still don't even know what I'm talking about. It's okay. These people reject the message because it is foolishness to them. And the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in in verses 6 through 10 that they don't understand the mystery, they don't have the eyes to see, they don't have the ears to hear, or the heart to conceive, and therefore those who reject the message are doomed to pass away. And we talked about the application of that message. 
The very idea that these realities, these spiritual realities of the reception of the message of God is a very understanding for us in our disciple-making efforts as we go forth in this world. We go forth into the world proclaiming the gospel, understanding the realities that some will receive and that some will reject. And it is those realities that are necessary for us to move forward in discipleship. In the church, we understand that as we uh, instruct and we guide and we teach you all as believers in Jesus Christ, your reception of that message, your hunger for the Word of God and growth in Jesus is a very sign and identification of the Spirit of God in you. Therefore, we rejoice in that in our disciple-making efforts. And we hold you to an accountability in that growth spiritually because you possess the Holy Spirit in Christ. But we also understand the reality that those who reject it, as we go out into the world, as we proclaim the message of the gospel, people will laugh at us, they will scorn us, they will mock us, they will think that we're uh, ridiculous in all that we believe. They will reject us and they will persecute us. This helps us understand a reception that we might expect in this world. On top of the fact that it helps us understand the culture in general and how it responds to the truth of God, how it behaves, and how we should pray for those in our culture. But we move now to three of the following verses, and I'm only going to get through three today. Verses 10 down through 12. And today I want to look at Paul's continuing argument, and I entitled this, The Spiritual Realities About God's Spirit. See, we want to know why and how these things function like looking under the hood of the car. And guess what? We need some mechanic, some expert to come and explain to us the spiritual realities as to why we can believe the gospel. Why can we understand the truths of God's power and His might? How can we conceive of of a Lord and a King who would come and die upon a cross for our salvation? How can we understand these things? And the truth is, we understand them by the spiritual realities of God's Holy Spirit. So today is going to be a primer on the Spirit. A primer on the Spirit I want us to consider first how we should behold the invisible. We should behold the invisible. It is a fleshly lust and a fleshly desire of us to gravitate to things that we see and to ignore the things that we can't see. Right? You've heard the phrase, just sweep it under the rug. Some of you are guilty of literally sweeping it under the rug. If you have a junk drawer at your house like I do, it's sight without seeing. You get it in that drawer, you somehow make it close, and it just disappears. We don't have to worry about it, we don't have to think about it. That's why our china is under the bed, because it's a good place for china, right? Sight unseen. Well, there are spiritual realities, so many that I can't even go into in in this sermon today, but in particular, Paul wants us to 
to behold those spiritual realities, most particularly that revolve around the Holy Spirit. But I want to walk us through uh, some ideas and, and take us to this understanding so that we can, looking under our spiritual hood, understand what God is doing in our lives. So as we behold the invisible, as we see what cannot be seen, but with spiritual eyes, let's first conceive and, and understand the idea that God is spirit. Okay? God is a spirit. Paul says these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 10. Now I believe verse 10 is is the gateway to the the following verses uh, of 11 all the way down to 16 that kind of sets up this idea of the work of the Holy Spirit in the, in the hearts and minds of believers. But he's defining for us that the work of the Holy Spirit is of the most greatest importance. It is the key to understanding why we understand and comprehend the things of God. And I thought it would be helpful for us to first conceive and understand and comprehend not just that God Um, represents Himself as the Holy Spirit in the third person of the Trinity, but in general that God is Spirit. God is Spirit. Let me take us back to our statement of faith. Article number two, we read this last week. There is but one God the maker, preserver, and ruler of all things, having in and of himself all perfections, and being infinite in them all, and to him all creatures owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. Now church, you need to understand that that statement about God is a monotheistic statement. We as Christians believe in one God. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God, one being that represents him, Himself in three persons. He is the Trinity, a triune God that we hold to. But the, the important point of our belief in God is that a monotheistic idea of God, believing that there is one God and only one God, actually isn't unique to just us. Okay? The Trinity, belief in the Trinity sets us as Christians apart from all other religions. But Islam and Judaism also are monotheists. They also believe that there is only one God. And so our belief in the triune God, the very essence that God is one being in three persons, is key to our Christian faith. To deny the Trinity is to deny the Christian faith. Because you have literally identified yourself not with Christianity, but with Islam and, and, and Judaism. But to affirm uh, God as a triune God is all important and the foundation of our faith in Christ. Now, this God we learn in... Many of us uh, have learned uh, catechisms. 
There are Baptist catechisms that I think are very helpful for us to learn and to study. Uh, One catechism asks the question, what is God? God is spirit is the answer. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That is a summation of God. And in in the essence of uh, uh, each person of the Trinity then, we could identify as infinite, eternal, unchangeable, full of wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our children, my children in particular, have a kid's catechism that they learn. And we ask the question, who is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit. And He does not have a body like men. So keep with me, follow with me today, okay? For us to understand the passage before us, we have to understand the way in which God has revealed Himself. In all His power, in all His glory, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... But most importantly in our passage today, we understand God as spirit. What does that mean? To be a spirit is not to contain material qualities. God consists of immaterial qualities alone and therefore does not have a body like us. As a spirit, God can be eternal, infinite, unchangeable. God as a spirit is the concept of the immaterial nature of God, while man is material, for we are made of matter. Some of us have more material than others. Does this not at all mean that God cannot reveal Himself to human beings in a material state? Because there are clearly numerous passages in the Old Testament that state that God has revealed Himself. He has made the eyes to see. He has made the ears to hear as we looked at last week. But overall, the Bible communicates to us that God is Spirit. John chapter 4 teaches us this. John chapter 4 verse 24, God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So God is immaterial. That is very important. He is invisible, as the Bible says. He is unseen to our eyes. And yet we believe Him. We believe in the invisible. We believe in things that are unseen because God has revealed Himself in such a way to us through the visible, bodily Son of God, Jesus Christ. But it is fair and it is safe and it is true to say that God in His being is spirit. Jesus said that. Now some people ask the question, well what about, does God have a spiritual body? Like we have a physical body, does God have a spiritual body? And we ask this question because in the Bible we read statements like, Referring to like the arm of God or the the hands or the feet of God or the, the ear of God. And as you study those things, you begin to formulate in your head, well, what does God look like? Is he like the old man with the long beard like Father Time? And the answer to that is no. He is a spirit. He does not have a body like man. Any description of God 
in the Bible that references uh, some uh, uh, portion of him or component of him that reflects a human component. It is a long, lengthy word that's called an anthropomorphism. Try writing that down in your Bible. Anthropomorphism. And really what that means is God is communicating to human audiences concepts that we will understand about God's being and presence. So for instance, the arm of God reflects the power and the might of God. We might think the, that when we are under the feet of God or someone is under the feet of God, they are dispossessed or they are defeated in such a way because God has His foot upon them. What that doesn't mean is that God has a foot. And so the idea is, is that the invisible reflects the fact that God is spirit. Matter of fact, Timothy tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, that God is the immortal and invisible. And John Feinberg, one of my favorite authors, reflects upon it this way. He says, although God's, although God's essential nature is spirit, that does not preclude him from making his presence known through some physical phenomenon that manifests his presence to those who see or hear it. This shouldn't be entirely surprising, for God as creator of matter and spirit certainly ought to be able to supply whatever matter he needs on any occasion to manifest his presence. So does God have a spiritual body like us? I think the Bible is clear that He does not. He is spirit. And as spirit, He is invisible. Now we would say then that God's spirit is God. Paul is now identifying not just the spiritual nature of God, but he literally uses the definite article, the spirit. And when we see the definite article there, we now understand that he is referring to not an immaterial nature, but a person. The person of the Godhead that we refer to or know as the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. We would say, I would say, that the Holy Spirit is often the forgotten person of the Godhead. Even in our culture today, in our fear of of movements like the charismatic movement, we have kind of steered away from understanding the work and power and giving glory and honor to the work and power of the Holy Spirit out of fear that we want to be, we don't want to be one of those charismatics. But the truth of the matter is the Holy Spirit is fully God. And Paul wants the Corinthians to see that the person of the Holy Spirit is the key to understand the work of God's mystery in Christ. And can you see the Holy Spirit? He's invisible. And yet He's active. And yet He's at work. And so as God reflects Himself and reveals Himself to be Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity is the Spirit of God. And in every function, in every way, the Holy Spirit is God. He's not a lesser God. 
God does not transfer Himself first as the Father in phase one, second as the Son in phase two, third as the Holy Spirit in phase three. That's not how God reveals Himself. There has from eternity past, and there will always be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit three in one. That is the beauty of the Trinity that we come to understand. And yet our minds can't conceive of it fully. But Paul is introducing the Spirit to them. Matter of fact, he has not mentioned the Spirit in 1 Corinthians yet. But listen, he will mention it over 15 times throughout the rest of our study. It is a key component to Paul's argument to the church in Corinth. In chapter 2, verse 4, he reminds them that his preaching came in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That he himself was given the the very words and the very power to preach in such a way that effectual change happened because the Spirit was engaging and initiating such change. And he's helping them understand that the very wisdom of God is revealed and revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit in this world to those whom He has chosen. And that will be Paul's argument. And as we understand this, we understand that the Holy Spirit speaking is the very person of God through the Holy Spirit speaking. And we, we celebrate and worship the Spirit. We understand that the Holy Spirit is the revealing agent of truth and the very agent of application for the work of Jesus. In other words, as in eternity past, the Father is uh, tasked with the responsibility of sending the Son into the world. The Son is tasked with accomplishing the very work of redemption by putting on human flesh, by living the perfect life, by dying upon the cross, rising victoriously from the grave. And we could say then that the Father and the Son send the Spirit into the world to be the agent of application for all that Jesus Christ accomplished. And so Paul's argument in verse 10 is that this Spirit is the key for the church. That as the wisdom of God is heralded and and proclaimed, we can know God because the Spirit of God is at work in us. And he makes this amazing and puzzling claim in verse 10. He says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything even the depths of God. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, who better to know the mind of God than the Spirit of God? If you want to understand God, you can't understand God in your own wisdom, but the Spirit of God can understand God. Sounds kind of confusing, right? Paul understood that. He understood that it would be confusing. But if we can just take a step back for a moment and, 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 and understand that in the triune Godhead, Paul is telling us that the deepest, most profound truths about God is known by the Holy Spirit. 
as a people who believe in the Trinity, that doesn't surprise us, but it does kind of make our head explode if we could even conceive of such truths. Because the Holy Spirit does reveal everything about God to us. He doesn't reveal everything about God. We have what was intended and purpose for us. But His capacity, His understanding of the Godhead far surpasses anything that we can think or imagine. Matter of fact, Paul in Romans chapter 11 makes this claim, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. So Paul is saying from man's perspective, we cannot even conceive of the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, the Spirit understands. The Spirit knows. So if you're making this argument that the only way in which you can understand the wisdom of God is by the Spirit of God, then Paul's saying, you better go to the Spirit to find the answer. He's the expert that you need to, conceive, to, to comprehend the truths of God's Word. And he's making this point because of his final, um, final argument, I would say, in verses 11-12. He makes the analogy in verses 10 about the Spirit of God knowing the depths and the, and the, uh, the, the understanding and the truths of God. And then he makes the analogy in verses 11 and 12 for, uh, again, in a human perspective, for us to kind of understand what he's saying. And so in verse 11, he says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? Newsflash. We've learned that God is spirit. We've learned that the third person of the, tr- of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. And now Paul's telling us in verse 11 that we have a spirit. That's very important for us, church. It's very important for us to understand the composition of man. Because man is also flesh and spirit. It's important for us to understand what God, how God created us. And Paul makes that clear in verse 11. He's saying, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So let's let's take a dive into this composition of man, man being flesh and spirit. It's easy for us to understand our flesh, right? We look at it every day in the mirror. We're whether happy with it or we're we're unhappy with it. But we don't oftentimes think about our spirit. Now, I know for some of you, you're you're tossing this, uh, these thoughts are bouncing around in your head and you're like, "Well, well, what about our soul? Well, you've entered into a very difficult argument. It's the argument, here's two more theological words for you, the argument of trichotomy and dichotomy. All right? Makes a great tattoo. Dichotomy, trichotomy. 
the, 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 the debate within the scholarly realm has often been in this area of rather dichotomy or trichotomy. Dichotomy means that man is made up of flesh and spirit. Trichotomy believes that man exists in flesh, spirit, and soul. I have been a dichotomist since I can remember as a believer. That's where I stand. I'll be clear on it in the moments going forward. If you are a trichotomist, we can fellowship together. It's not a part of our belief statements. I would disagree with you and still love you as a brother or sister in Christ, even though you're wrong. Let me explain to you why I believe that man is, consists of simply a body and a spirit or soul. For example, we see passages in the scriptures where the word spirit and the word soul are both used interchangeably. I'll give you a couple. In Zechariah chapter 12, the oracles of the Lord, a word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. There you have God forming man and putting the spirit of man within him. The invisible spirit, the unseen spirit that lives within us, that exists as a component of our nature. Proverbs chapter 20. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all of his inmost parts or innermost parts. This states the reality that man has an invisible spiritual substance within him given to us by God at creation, at our creation. Spirit does not mean our emotions or our passions. He's not saying, as some people say, man, she's gotten a lot of spirit in her. What he's saying is that God has created a, a duality in our being as human beings. And that is, in my opinion, a duality. Meaning we are consisting of two parts. And those parts work in unity in a very mysterious way. Why I believe it's not three? Let me give you some examples from Scripture. In Luke chapter 1, Mary uh, proclaims about the Lord, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. There Mary is reflecting on her soul and her spirit, but she is not dissecting those two. She's literally speaking poetically about the same thing. She's not saying my soul magnifies the Lord, but not my spirit. And she's not saying my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, but not my soul. Similarly, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, the writer of Hebrews writes... And to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The writer of Hebrews is speaking about those who have died, that they are now existing as merely spirits outside of their body, 
We could likewise call them souls that have been made perfect. Matter of fact, that's exactly what John says in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, John refers to them as souls. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with him for a thousand years. My argument here is simply that it's a spirit, it's a soul, it's the same thing, the innermost being within man. Therefore, I believe that they are synonymous terms, much like Louis Burkhoff, who states that the body and soul are distinct substances which do interact, though their mode of interaction escapes human scrutiny and remains a mystery to us. The union between the two may be called a union of life. The two are organically related, the soul acting on the body and the body acting on the soul. So Paul wants us to understand this. He wants us to understand this duality. He's making this point so that the Corinthian believers can understand that as a human being has the spirit within them, all the thoughts, all the emotions, but also the relationship to God, that soul that exists, that lives within the body, but then one day will exist eternally outside of the body, he is using that as a way in which to communicate that just like we have an inner person or a spirit, so God has a spirit. And just as you sit in the shower or lay in your bed and you have these thoughts going on in your head and you're thinking about work for the day or the problems in your home or what you need to make for dinner, nobody else hears those things, right? You might call them ramblings. Your thoughts are bouncing all around. Who hears them but your spirit? Who understands them? You have not communicated them with your mouth You've not written them down on paper, and yet they're there. And there's a reality there. Well, in the same way, who knows the mind of God and the depths of God, but the Spirit of God? And for us to truly understand God Himself then, we must go to God's Spirit. But here's the problem. We can't. And this is Paul's argument. The Spirit of God must come to us. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4 tells us, Behold, all the souls are mine. You could say the spirits are mine. The soul of the Father as well. The soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Therefore, we understand that God created mankind with body and soul. That there in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were created in perfect fellowship with God both in body, and in soul. In other words, they were perfectly related to God spiritually, and they were perfectly related to God physically. They walked with Him in the garden. They fellowshiped with Him. They had a righteous and perfect relationship with Him. There was no sin, there was no separation, and yet they chose 
to disobey God. They chose to rebel. And in their rebellion, they were judged bodily and spiritually. Matter of fact, God told them, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? Die, right? But did they die that day? Absolutely. Physically, they didn't die. God could have immediately killed them. Sin and death enters into the world, and a part of death begins to consume them. In other words, they are bodily beginning the process of dying and corruption because of sin. But God did not kill them, and yet they died because they died spiritually. Matter of fact, their expulsion from the garden represents that very thing, that they were both bodily and spiritually rejected by God. And so this is Paul's understanding and his point so that you and I can understand the functionality within us because sin and all its corruption... And all its depravity corrupts our soul or our spirit in such a way that it creates a separation that cannot be repaired on our own. It cuts us off to the wisdom of God. It cuts us off to the understanding and the comprehension of who God is. Therefore, Paul's point in these passages today is that we must have these things of God revealed to us. And so he kind of culminates these these ideas and these thoughts to verse 12. Now, he says, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might comprehend the things freely given to us by God. Church, when we believe and trust in Jesus Christ, it's because we have received the gift of revelation and, or, or inspiration and understanding of the revelation of God. He has allowed our minds to conceive of such a message that was lunacy and foolishness to the believing wor- unbelieving world. And yet we have come with this knowledge and this wisdom, because God has opened our minds to see it. Like a light going off in a dark cave, God has opened our minds to believe in Jesus, to have the faith to trust in Him. Because without that, we are doomed to pass away. You know, I like to speak a lot about the work that I do outside of church. And uh, I spoke to you about the things my dad taught me as an, in, in the world of maintenance and construction. He was an electrician, for those of you that don't know. And um, he taught me a lot of things about electrical work. And uh, I hope to help you in uh, the issues you may have going on at your house. Um, typically, we will have a situation where somebody has a receptacle, a plug, in their house that doesn't work. And oftentimes, that one doesn't work, and a few more around the room don't work. 
And the reason why is because those are all daisy-chained together. And because the power is broken at the front of that chain, then the rest of those don't work either. And all you have to do is fix the one at the beginning, reconnect the power supply, and all the other ones will function properly. You're welcome. Now, when we come to understand the spiritual realities of God's wisdom, the brokenness and the deadness is not something that we can repair. Sin in itself has broken our relationship with God and therefore we must, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have Him reconnect the truth and the wisdom of God so that we might, down the line, produce the fruits that we as believers are meant to produce. Faith, joy, wisdom, understanding, love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. All these things because the Spirit has activated these things in us by allowing us to believe and trust in Him. We have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things that God, by His grace, has given to us. And so, church, we conclude this understanding, this time of of reflection in worship. This leads us to worship. Paul, Jesus said, we worship God because He is spirit. We worship Him in spirit and truth. And the truth of God that's been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit leads us to reflect upon all that He has done and appreciate and worship and adore the the work of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. That all that's been accomplished in Christ has been revealed to us. That the redemptive thread that's been passing through history pointing to Jesus has been made known to us and we can understand it And conceive it, and it's not just information, it leads us to praise His name. It leads us to worship Him. So that when Mr. Adam's singing and he and he backs away from the microphone, you don't pump the brakes because you can't, you can all of a sudden hear yourself singing. You have every reason to sing at the top of your lungs because the Holy Spirit has done a great work in you through Jesus Christ, and you have a reason to sing. Unhindered. You have a reason to celebrate and be thankful because Christ has saved you and the Holy Spirit has been given so we might understand those things. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the mysterious work that you have done the sanctifying and saving work of Christ, taking your enemies and giving them new life. We understand that new life to be a blessing of the Holy Spirit, awakening our minds and hearts to believe and trust in Christ. Like Lazarus coming from the grave, God, your Spirit has awakened us to believe in you and to understand these great truths. And so, Father, our prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving that you would allow us to know 
even a small part of all of your infinite being. That you would allow us to understand the triune nature of the Godhead so that we might worship Father, Son, and Spirit. That we might see the great work of redemption played out in our lives. That we would fall down in humility and worship because we are unworthy. And so, Father, we we thank You. We thank You for being our Father. We thank You for sending the Son and for using the Holy Spirit to bring about great change in our lives. And Father, even in this short time today, Father, there's so much more to say about Your great work. And because of that, we thank You that You have given us Your Word that we might digest and and feast upon it with great passion and and with with great uh, humility so that we can learn more and celebrate and, and worship you more for all that we have have received and, and have it illuminated within our minds and hearts. And so as we leave here today, Father, I pray that we would leave in a spirit of worship, thankful for what you have done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. What is our hope in life and death?